Hello and welcome to the Lancaster Patriot Podcast. My name is Chris Hume and thank you so much for joining me today. I have a special guest on the show today. His name is Timothy Decker. He is the author of the forthcoming book, Romans, let me get the right title here, A Revolutionary Reading of Romans 13, A Biblical Case for Lawful Subjection to the Civil Magistrate and Dutiful Resistance to Tyrants. Uh, Mr. Decker is also the pastor, one of the pastors at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church in Virginia, and I believe he also is a professor of Greek. Uh, Timothy, thanks so much for joining the show today. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, first thing, uh, Timothy, I'd like you to do uh, for our listeners, I know eventually here, I mentioned to you previously, we want to get into a little bit of a discussion on God's law, Romans 13. I think we'll have some agreements, maybe some disagreements, and just flesh out a couple things. But first of all, can you share with our listeners a little bit about your book? As I understand it, it's not released yet. Is that correct? Uh, well, if you were at the Founders Conference in Florida, I think they were giving out some copies and uh, selling some copies, but I haven't even received my author's copies <laughs> yet, um, but that they're on their way. So it, it is coming out forth. Uh, it is very much forthcoming. And uh, Dusty Devers is is giving a, a forward, and that will be in a second printing uh, that will be coming out as well. So it is coming. It's on its way. <laughs> awesome. I didn't know about uh, Dusty Devers. Of course, he uh, was recently elected to Oklahoma. Uh, was it a state rep in Oklahoma? Uh, state senator, yes, I believe state so. State senator. Okay, yeah. So uh, there's a man who's trying to bring the Lordship of Christ into the civil sphere, and I look forward to I'll have to wait for that copy to come out because I'd definitely like to read his forward. Uh, can you give us just a, a nutshell explanation of what your book is about? Obviously, it's about Romans 13. Uh, Romans 13 deals with the civil magistrate. Can you try? I know it's it's a lot there, but try to give us a summary of what readers might expect or if they might be interested in purchasing your book. Sure. Well, it so so I, I deal with it in three phases. Um, I, I think in terms of the world behind the text, the world in the text, and the world in front of the text. So I start with background information, how that would be very relevant to Paul's situation as he's writing to to the Christians in Rome and show that the situation that Paul is dealing with at that time <clears throat> was not where Christians were under intense persecution, but rather where Jews were very much prone to um, private revolution, bloody revolution. And scriptures bear that forth, but I just give a added, you know, um, a color to that, as well as the, the fact that Emperor Nero at the time, we hear Nero, we cringe, yet Nero in his first five years of his um uh, of his reign uh, was actually very good, uh, generally thought to be one of the best emperors up until, you know, he uh, wasn't. <clears throat> so with those types of things in the background, we look at in the text and leading into the context of this Jew-Gentile conflict that is happening in the book of Romans that sometimes gets mentioned, but often we look at Romans and think it's just a treatise on justification. And it does that, but why does it do that? Why does Paul deal with justification for the Jews and for the Gentiles, well, there there is this looming issue in the church that um, uh, that Paul is wanting to address if he's going to make Rome his hub to you know do ministry in Western Europe. And then finally, uh, we have to go in front of the text. How do we compare Romans thirteen with other passages of Scripture that deal with the magistrate and 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 in submission, and then uh, do some some synthesis after that, and even uh, a chapter on concepts of tyranny uh the, um we just need to have a better understanding of tyranny and uh all the biblical and i say all many biblical descriptions of tyranny that we see and examples of tyranny that we see throughout the bible 
And finally, we conclude with just what do we do with all this? And uh, that was uh, that was the I think the final chapter. We we kind of gave an application. All right, here's here's what we do now. Here's where we move forward. How how long is the book for our listeners? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> okay, I'm going to okay. say the ballpark of 250 pages. Okay, all right. So it's 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 digestible. It's not a thousand page tome here. It's something people can, you know, get their hands on, wrap their mind around, and try to think through Romans 13. Right, and uh, it was meant to be for the pastor, student, serious-minded Christian who wants to learn about the subject. Okay. Well, I'd like to dig into it a little bit, especially you brought up there the term tyranny, and that's something that on this podcast we frequently talk about. And I, I appreciated uh, some of your comments you made on a podcast. It was the Sword and the Trial podcast. Uh, I did a bit of an analysis on that podcast. And you, you did mention, you know, these themes, these concepts that you're bringing up in this book are not new. Uh, men in the past have studied these issues. They've brought them up. I mean, you even mentioned Nero. Last night, I was actually reading Greg Bonson uh, in his book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, and he makes that very point that for the first five years or so of Nero's reign, uh, it, it was marked by enlightened government, uh, which became famous in the provinces. So, And then later, of course, Nero degraded uh, into debauchery and persecution of the Christians. But I'd like to start out maybe to see if... Um, there's some groundwork we could lay, see if we agree on a few things here. I know we agree on many things, but the issue of, of tyranny and Romans 13 and what the role of the civil government is, uh, you mentioned in that podcast that the role of the civil government is to punish evildoers. And I think that's very clear from Romans 13, uh, but yet for many Christians, that seems to be an issue that hasn't been thought about. Now, one of my concerns is that many Christians have said, well, you know, before 2020, no one thought about resistance to tyrants. Uh, we never thought about this. And I pointed out, I don't think that's true. I think many Christians have. And, and you mentioned this, you know, you've even mentioned Matt Truella uh, on that podcast. So maybe can you just share a little bit about some of the men, uh, some of the things you started to read and what brought you to the point to say, hey, wait a minute, this has been thought about before. We need to keep thinking about resistance to tyrants and maybe even improve our theology of this. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot there. So let, let, let's take things one at a time, because you could say that Christians have been thinking about this for a while, but uh, maybe in small circles, that is the case. And uh, I, I know you, you took issue with, with Graham's statement that uh, no one was thinking of this before 2020. And, and uh, I think a charitable hearing of, of Graham's statement, he's, he's speaking in hyperbole. Uh, so you, you kind of gave it's either this or that, either he's lying or he's ignorant. Well, I think his, his fears of influence, uh, I mean, they're a Southern Baptist. Southern Baptists weren't talking about this. Um, and so in, in terms of hyperbole, I think that's what he, is, what, he, what he is saying there. And at the same time, yes, Bonson, Rush Dooney, and others were talking about this. But you, you also need to understand that when, when we go to matters, we, we who are not uh, theonomists, we who are not reconstructionists, we don't go to reconstructionist unless we're trying to see what exactly they're dealing with. So my only interactions with uh, Rush Dooney or Gary North is when I'm trying to see how do they translate and interpret like Matthew 28, 19 as something I'm working on. Um, so uh, yeah, for, for Graham to say that no one has you know talked about this before 2020 or thought about this, I think he's just thinking in terms of who he's interacting with in his area of influence. Who um, and he's speaking very, very much in hyperbole. For me, uh, I did read Matt Truhella probably in 2020, 
and was exposed to the Magdeburg Confession. And uh, my background is I, I grew up independent Baptist. And so uh, and then I moved to Southern Baptist and now I'm Reformed Baptist. And um, part of the issue that we deal with is that uh, you look at most independent Baptist churches, most Southern Baptist churches, what will you find in the platform? You'll find an American flag and a Christian flag. And that is because, you know, for a long time, it was just believed and assumed that America was a Christian nation. That's how it's always been. And that's how it would be. And therefore, if it's a Christian nation, you submit to it no matter what. Uh, and that's why there was not this thinking of, you know, do we need to you know, consider our, our magistrate tyrannical? Uh, it just it, it got comfortable. It got easy. It got apathetic to associate patriotism uh, with with Christianity because, you know, in, in many people's minds, America could do no wrong. And uh, which is which is obviously incorrect, as 2020 clearly demonstrated to a lot of these people, uh, myself included. Um, anyways, so we, we, we have that issue where we have we, there, there are many people who have been talking about these things, but they've been talking about it like Bonson or Rush Dooney because your entire sphere of focus is on the law of God, particularly understood in a theonomic reconstructionist point of view so it would it would make sense that you or or bonton or others like that are going to have a lot to say on this because uh that tends to be the 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 main thing that you focus upon me the reason i wasn't focused upon it political thought theology is not something that i had given much time to in my upbringing and in my training it's not even something that's really even mentioned i had a very simplistic understanding of romans 13 my area of focus is n nothing related to this at all. So that's why I had to play catch up. And part of that playing catch up is reading uh, some of these guys that have been writing on this stuff for a long time, whether it be um, <clears throat> John Murray or you go back farther to, you know, the reformers and you go to Luther, Melanchthon, you go to Samuel Rutherford and John Knox, uh, Althusius and, and, and others. There's a lot of good stuff that's out there. Junius Brutus. Um, great stuff is out there and we're just now realizing we got to retrieve this stuff. Retrieval has been a major part of, you know, the thought world, uh, at least in reform circles, reform Baptists, especially as we're retrieving our confessional heritage. And so, uh, in, in, in retrieving these things, we realize, wow, we, we've talked about this and we've seen how it's <clears throat> really important. And so that's why there's been this lack. That's why there's been this gap because we've just assumed so much we've become apathetic and now we're realizing we need to round out our understanding of of all forms of theology including political theology so i'm not sure if that answered your question because i'm started rambling so i no, that's 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 great i'm sure our listeners will be happy to hear that and i hear what you're saying uh, as far as graham gunn and obviously i'm not going to ask you to speak for him but i think one of my concerns is uh, you know, if we just kind of box it off and say, okay, you got the theonomists over here, you got the Southern Baptists over here. I think that was one of my frustrations is that, you know, I got into thinking about these things, not because I was a theonomist first and I was like, well, okay, now because I'm a theonomist, I have to think about uh, justice in the civil realm. It was quite the opposite. Uh, I began seeing around me tyrannical things happening. And I want to talk about those because I think we might have common ground there. I began to see the state, for example, uh, punish midwives for helping mothers give birth. 
I saw the state, you know, punishing people for selling products to their neighbors, selling milk or other products. And I began to ask myself, you know, is, is this right? Is this just? So I think my overall frustration with what happened in 2020 and some of the people looking back at it now is saying, well, you know, we didn't, we didn't know how to handle this. And I get, you know, the different theological camps, so to speak. But my hope is that perhaps now we can work together more and say, okay, well, maybe we don't agree on, on every, every little detail here. But if we are Christians acknowledging the Lordship of Christ, you know, how do we define justice in the civil sphere? And I think that was my frustration, and it wasn't only with Graham Gundam, but there are others uh, like Dr. Bob Godfrey, who's not a Baptist, who said something very similar that, you know, now we have to start thinking about, you know, what, what sins are crimes and, and so forth. And the thing is, you know, men have been thinking about that for, for generations, and I understand people aren't going to accept everything they say, but to me it was just, it revealed that, uh, you know, people have maybe said, well, we're not going to deal with theonomists unless we're going to go specifically and look at what they view on this passage, instead of saying, well, overall, there's some really good things here to consider, especially as it relates to tyranny. Um, because, I mean, I would say that the main thing here as we're talking about justice and God's law is, what does God require in society, and what does he authorize the civil magistrate to do? Now, I think we, I'd like to spend a few moments there, because I think we might agree on a lot of things, and uh, we don't need to spend too much more time on, you know, where people were at prior to 2020 and where they're at now. I think the main thing is, can we move forward now and, and work together and sharpen one another, which is why I appreciate very much that you'd come on the show. You know, we have some disagreements. Obviously, you didn't know much about where we'd go with this. So I'm very gracious of you to come on. And I'd like to just kind of push this a little bit further and say, okay, well, what, what is the role of the civil magistrate? It seems like, you know, to, to, people, to someone like me, it's very encouraging to hear others who in the past maybe would have said, well, we don't have time for political theology. You know, you theonomists are focused on the wrong thing. To now hear them say, look, we do need to have this category of tyranny in the civil realm, and let's try to define that biblically. So I'll let you respond to that, but then my main question is, if you want to move right into it, is how, do we, how would you say we can define tyranny biblically? And um, we can camp there, or if you want to not move there yet, it's up to you. Let, let, let's say let's take up tyranny in a second, but let's talk about the civil magistrate's role first. I think because you, you brought brought that up. Uh, Romans thirteen, First Peter two, make it very clear: uh, punish the evildoer and then praise the good. That's right. Now, I think there's a third category implied when you bear the sword. There is a, a component of protection, and, and, and we, we have to be careful how we talk about protection. Um, <clears throat> but to bear the sword uh, and to punish the evildoer is a form of protection. When you take the uh, murder off the street, and I believe in capital punishment and, and, and due process uh, is put to death by the magistrate, that is a form of protection. When you have invaders coming in, uh, then it is the magistrate's role. That's why we pay taxes to, uh, you know, give them, you know, a sheath and a sword that they might bear. You know, it's their role to protect. So I'm not afraid of saying protection is a role of the magistrate, but when we take that too far, we give over our own personal rights and our own uh, uh, family sphere of, of rights of protection too. So th that has to be balanced, I think, but I don't want to say it's not protection. But primarily what scripture lays out is the idea of punishing the evildoer, praising the good, rewarding the good for when they do those things. And where we're going to probably disagree is when we talk about the law of God, what we mean by the law of God and how that informs what is, what is uh, punishable, 
what 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 is you know considered wicked versus what is praiseworthy. That might be where we get into some differences. Right. I guess I would ask, uh, I would take a bit of an issue with that protection thing, and we might be able to circle back around to it. But let me first start out by saying, or by asking, I should say, uh, if we say the role of the civil government is to punish evildoers, um, of course, the question is, who determines what is evil? And who determines what evil actions the civil government, the civil magistrate can punish? Because I agree 100%. That's what Romans 13 says, what First Peter says, uh, the role of the civil magistrate is to punish those who do evil. And one of the things I'd like to get Christians to see is if we can at least start with this understanding that the civil magistrate should never punish the righteous or someone for righteous actions, or in another way to put it is they should never punish someone for a non-evil act. I would like to see if you disagree, if you agree with that, or if you'd like to define it another way. How do we define what is evil that the civil magistrate is to punish? The moral law of God is the defining feature. And, and this is what Westminster, London Baptist Confession all bear out. That the, the law of God, and in Romans 13, what does it refer to? It refers to the, the second table of the law, the Ten Commandments. And so specifically, as it pertains to the civil sphere, the what what I would hold to as the common kingdom, we might have uh, differences there. But when Paul is dealing in Romans 13 with the civil magistrate, later in Romans 13, he comes down to uh, within the common kingdom, what does he deal with? He deals with the second table of the law. And specifically, when he's talking about the law of God, he's specifically in that in that context talking about the, the moral law uh, enumerated in the Ten Commandments. So when you look at what the confession has to say, whether it be Westminster, London Baptist, when we say general equity, it doesn't mean we take Moses's uh, uh, civil code and draw principles from that. That's not what the, the confession means. General equity means that we take the Ten Commandments and we draw the, the, the law code from that for the civil magistrate. So when we're trying to determine what is moral, what is immoral, what is right, what is wrong, we look at the Ten Commandments. And so we, we might say, for example, that... You know, going 100 miles an hour on the on the road is illegal because it puts lives in danger based on the sixth commandment, do not kill. Therefore, uh, the government is going to regulate speed limits. Now, we can talk about that, but what drives that ought to be the sixth commandment, what is going to preserve life, what is going to uh, 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 keep evildoers from, from doing harmful, you know, manslaughter and things like that. So uh, I'm going to say that the determiner of right and wrong is going to be the moral law of God. Okay, that brings us right back to the protection issue. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the concerns of, of, at least for me, I don't know if I can speak for all quote-unquote theonomists, but the point is, uh, I, I agree the moral law of God is the standard by which we determine that which is evil and that which is not evil. Uh, I think when you look at the scripture, you see, and even you mentioned the Westminster Confession, you look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, you have these applications of the moral law in all the case laws. And you're looking at the case laws and saying, okay, how is the moral law of God applied here? Now, when you say the speed limits, for example, I mean, that's kind of taking the moral law of God and then creating a new case law and saying, well, you're not allowed to um, go over this speed limit. I think that's a concern for, for me because, one, you're, you're adding a case law to Scripture. Two, you don't see the principle in Scripture that someone's punished for the potential of harm. Uh, you see the parapet law where someone, if if harm follows an act of recklessness, then they are liable. But here again, we have the case of if it's 
if someone's driving over a speed limit set by some bureaucrat, have they done evil? And this is why I, I think it's important to start. If, if the civil government's job is to punish evil and not to punish someone who has not committed evil, how can they punish someone for speeding? How can they punish someone for selling a gallon of milk to their neighbor? Because um, I think it, only if we have God's law in place and we follow it, then we can actually set limits to tyranny. So what you mean ahead. by God's law is not what I'm meaning by it necessarily. I'm not including the civil code of Moses, um, the, uh, the, the judicial law of Moses when I, when I say that. So, so you mentioned the parapet law. I think the, 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 the case law of the parapet is the same idea as the uh, speed limit. It's to prevent possible injury. It's, it, but what's behind the parapet law is the sixth commandment. What's behind, and I just picked speed limits off the top of my head. I, I don't have anything prepared. Uh, I don't have a policy no, in sure, place about speed limits. So uh, that just kind, kind of came to my mind. Uh, it, but to follow it up, I would also say because of the sixth commandment, uh, I, I conceal carry. And I think every, every man uh, with a family and to protect himself ought to just because you have a lawful duty to protect life, uh, which is part of the sixth commandment. You have a, you have a moral obligation from God to protect your family. Uh, otherwise, you're worse than a heathen. Right. So we could go with go at it that route if you if you want to. But um, you know, <clears throat> that to to say that uh, protection is not involved here, I think is is um, I don't know, ironic when you bring up the parapet because that's exactly what the parapet was for. It was to protect on the chance that someone would fall off the roof. And right, so, but, likewise, you could make that same application of the sixth commandment. I'm not applying the parapet. I'm applying the sixth commandment. And if you want to apply it to roadways. And, I, and I'm thinking of uh, of a small town that has a 20 mile an hour speed limit when you have people walking on the side of the roads. Uh, would you want that? Would you want there to be an autobahn running through there where people would fly across and, and potentially kill people? Well, no, I think if you're going to say that the sixth commandment is to protect life, um, that's one of the the applications of the sixth commandment, then that might be a reasonable uh, cause to say we need to put the speed limit at 20 miles an hour because statistics show this, that, and the other. So I'm just using that as an example. I'm not. No, yeah, I think it's a good example. And I think the, the reason that I would like to push it a little bit is because I think this is perhaps uh, a misunderstanding or a failure to communicate on the position of God's law. I simply want us to take all of God's word and try to apply it faithfully. So the way, same way we approach the New Testament and we look at the commands there and we seek to understand, you know, what was the intent of the author? Who's the audience? What's the principles here? We do the same thing with all of God's word. So the parapet law, for example, no one was punished if they didn't have a parapet. There was only, there was only punishment if harm came. So the issue with the speed limits is if we're taking the principle of God's word, the truth of God's word, and we're applying it, you, you would have the, you could make the case that if someone is driving recklessly and they injure someone or kill someone, they should be held accountable. And I think this is a perfect example where we have these DUI laws, these speed limit laws that are, you know, bleeding taxpayers dry. But if someone goes out there and recklessly uh, kills someone on the roadway, they're not executed. And so, you know, the Bible says that because the sentence against an evil deed is not carried out speedily, the heart of the children of men are fully set to do evil. So if, if biblical justice, and if we can use that term to be more encompassing, and I know we might disagree on some of that, but biblical justice is that if you have done evil, you are punished after the fact. Um, the civil magistrate does not punish you prior to doing evil. 
So that's one of my, again, a fundamental concern I have with saying, well, the civil magistrate's going to protect us. They're going to make laws now. They're going to add laws to what God has already given to tell us what is safe and what is not safe. And I think that that's, if see, we need to first understand the Old Testament laws, and the parapet law is a great example, where no one was punished for not having a parapet. They were punished if someone fell to their death due to their negligence. So that's one thing to point out. Uh, as far as the concealed carry, and I'll let you respond to, to any of this stuff, uh, that's a great point. Uh, we are required to protect ourselves. I'm responsible to protect myself and my family. The civil magistrate is not uh, their duty is not to protect me. And we could get into that more, but I would, I guess I would ask you this, given that fact, uh, would you say it's tyrannical if the civil magistrate finds a man who is carrying a concealed weapon, did not ask the state for permission to do that, did not get a concealed carry permit, and then the civil magistrate punishes him? Would you say that that civil magistrate is authorized to do that according to God's word? No, in fact, I think that there is multiple reasons that would be tyrannical. One, our own law says shall not be infringed. So uh, when the government goes against our own uh, constitution, the government is breaking its own laws and therefore is tyrannical. But there is the, the right of self-preservation. Um, and so, yes, it, it would be tyrannical to put those rights or uh, to, to restrict what is uh, a right given by God. Okay. And maybe we can spend a little more time there because uh, before we get, you know, I don't know if we'll have time to get back into the protection piece, but the issue of, I, I think if Christians could come to understand that anytime the civil government punishes someone for a non-evil action, they're acting tyrannically. And I think the speed limit law gets in there. I mean, you could have a good reason for going over the speed limit and you could not be endangering anybody and the state could still punish you even though you haven't committed an evil act according to God's word, according to God's law. So, I mean, there are many instances of this, and this is why I guess I was kind of frustrated with Graham Gundon's comment is, uh, if you're in this nation, there are so many man-made laws. Uh, we had our midwife in Delaware who was a felon because she helped our my wife give birth. Uh, we had our Amish farmer who was selling raw milk to us, who was also a criminal. Uh, we had all these cases of tyranny. Of course, we have abortionists doing their thing. And so, it just it seems to me like we have we have right before us these categories that we could easily say, man, the government is tyrannical any time they punish someone for a non-evil act, uh, and and that's where I would I would like to be encouraged and say, okay, well you know maybe these guys who aren't theonomists but they can stand with us and and call on the government to stop punishing people for you know driving down the road without a piece of metal on their vehicle for selling milk to their neighbor. Now of course. So you see the justification that's always given when they do punish these people is, well, this is for your safety. It's for your protection. And I don't see where that ends. And I think only if you limit the government to what the Bible calls it to do, which is punish evildoers, and how do you know which evil acts they should punish? I submit you go to the, the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation and say, what has God laid out as the application of the civil magistrate's duty to punish evil? And so that's where I'm struggling. So go ahead. I, I would go a little bit more. I, I'm still not a, a opposed to saying that civil government is going to protect. Uh, again, I use the the issue of invasion. Uh, if someone is invading your land, is it the uh, private person who is supposed to go, or is it the public person leading those who are paid, you know, to bear the sword? And, and so I think protection is a part of it. But let's let's go back to the speed limits then. I again, I don't know why I thought of that, but uh, it's not just for protection and safety. It's also for order. It's it's to to make things function efficiently. So if you have people on the highway going 100 miles an hour and people on the highway going 10 miles an hour, 
you're going to cause uh, chaos and confusion. And so if God is a God of order, if we're to do things decently in order, then part of the, the role of the, the magistrate is to ensure that uh, as, as so far, and, and this is where the praise uh, or rewarding those who do good would come in. Um, and so I, I could see the speed limit as a way to, um, you know, ensure that things are well-maintained and, and orderly. If someone is going too slow, it's going to disrupt the order. That's going to cause, you know, economic problems or, you know, safety problems. People may not be able to get to the um, hospital in time if they're, you know, in an emergency situation. And so I could see other reasons beyond just, you know, a, a speed limit for safety. Um, so. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to, let me just comment real quick on that. I think that's part of uh, one of the reasons that we really need to take a step back and say, how much has statism influenced us? I mean, it's it's second nature now for Americans to assume the government should be educating our children, the government should be taking care of health care, the government should be managing the roads. And I think that's part of the problem in peeling back these layers of statism to say, you know what, what if the government wasn't in charge of the roadways? And I think this is one of the things we have in our minds is this, if the government wasn't doing this, there would be chaos. And I don't believe that. I believe that there, there are private means. Um, it doesn't mean you can't have uh, regulations privately. Uh, many of the roadways here in Pennsylvania used to be privately owned. Uh, once the state takes over, it's so hard to, to peel back statism. But fundamentally, philosophically and theologically, if we say the government's job is to order things for us, uh, then we have opened the door for them to order every single area of our lives. And I didn't uh, say that though. Right. But well, you did say that it's part of their job to, to have order to, well, to place. Not that they order things, but they, they keep things orderly. Right. Well, the question help is maintain how, yeah. the order and, and doing things decently in an order. Yeah, sure. The I, question I is how they do a that. Common kingdom. And, it, it, is, and yeah. if they are given the, the, the sphere of, of magistry over the common kingdom, then they are going to have, just like a, 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 you as a father have to keep your family decently in order. And so when it comes to commerce and it comes to roadways, uh, I, you know, I, I, can't, I can't do a roadway. I can't keep it decently in order. But those who are given authority from God uh, can certainly maintain and keep things decently in order. Right, I guess the disagreement is how they keep things in order. Do they keep things, is the sphere that God has given them to keep order by punishing evildoers after the fact, or is it to preemptively regulate and punish people even though they haven't committed evil? And I think that's where the big rub is, because the question is not, would a just civil magistrate uh, lead to more order in society? I would say, well, if they're punishing evildoers, Ecclesiastes says there will be less crime because justice will be served swiftly. But if, they, if we're saying they are to uh, impose order or lead to order by preemptively punishing people, I don't think the Bible authorizes them to do that. Because once you allow the government to preemptively punish people, you have given them a power that God has not granted them. And so then that leads them to say, well, we will tell you what you can and cannot eat. Uh, we will tell you what is safe. Uh, we will tell you, you know, what you have to do in order to travel. And if you don't follow all these rules and regulations, now you will be punished. And it's hard to argue against that if you say, well, God has granted the civil government authority not just to punish evildoers, but to punish people who don't follow regulations that may potentially lead to evil. Um, do you at least see the, the challenge there and the concern some people might have with saying, well, the government can, can order things and protect us, and, and that's fine? I see what you're saying, but when you say that's the rub, 
when you say that's the rub, I feel like you're making a big deal out of it. And again, when you ask me what should dictate, what should be policy, what should be case law, what should be, um, what should be law in the civil sphere, I'm saying it's the it's the it's the second table of the Ten Commandments. And so, <clears throat> with that said, I, I don't have a problem when statistics bear out that when you drive 80 miles an hour on a road things are much more dangerous. I don't think you're upholding the sixth commandment at that point. That's why I don't, I don't want an Autobahn. Now, I, 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 I'm leery of a overregulated society, but there are uh, efficiencies and there are safeties that, Im that, are, that are in place. And, and I do think that bearing the sword has implications for the idea that punish evilling, evildoers, praising good, and along with that would be uh, to to protect protect from outside and protect from within even and to maintain uh, help maintain uh, efficiency and order. I think that's all part of the sphere. And so what's driving that is not Old Testament case law. And, and you even said, why don't we read the whole Bible like we read the New Testament? Well, read the New Testament, and when the New Testament deals with Moses' civil law, when does it when does he ever impose that on the on the state? Moses's case law, civil law, is only used for the church. So if we're going to read the Bible like that, then the New Testament is going to tell us that how we understand Mosaic Code, Mosaic case law, is is to be typified in the Israel fulfilled in the New Covenant, namely the church. Right. Of course, yeah, we could camp there for a while. Uh, I would argue that the the moral law of God applied in the civil sphere is affirmed in the New Testament. Um, it's not abolished. Of course, you know, Paul I didn't said say I, the moral law, though. I said right, that Moses is civil law. Right. But I said the moral law applied in the civil sphere. I know we're not going to agree on that. And, and of course, you know, we, we could we could get and I'd ha happy to get into that. Um, so but s some areas, again, where I think listeners might still want to know, I, I think on, on either side, say, OK, well, this is one of my one of my challenges is to say, OK, well, then how do you define overregulation? Um, if, if you don't have a standard in the word of God. So you, you say you're leery of overregulation. I understand that. I appreciate that. And I think many, many people are. My contention is simply that any regulation that punishes someone when they haven't done evil, um, and specifically, again, I will apply to the moral law of God as it is revealed through all of Scripture to say, what you can and can't punish. For example, I mean, Romans 13, and this is something another gentleman said, well, yeah, you only have the second table, you have, you, sh you, have um, you know, the second table there, but it goes all the way to you shall not covet. So is the argument that the civil magistrate should, pun it co should punish covetous thoughts? I haven't heard any non-theonomist make that case. So we're still looking at more of Scripture than just Romans 13 to say, what, do what can the government punish? Now, even if we don't get into the first table of the law, we may not have time for that. My question still is simply, how, how, do you, how can you even define overregulation if we are granting the civil government the authority, philosophically and theologically, we're saying God gives a civil magistrate authority to punish people even though they have not broken the law of God? So, and maybe we move off of speed limits for a minute, um, and we talk about other things. And we talk about, um, there's a case right here in Lancaster County where an Amish farmer is being sued by the state. Um, he's being threatened. He's been threatened before with jail time because he sells food to his neighbors. Now, you can make a great case that for the safety and good of the people, he needs to be regulated. But 
you can only do that if you say oh, the government's job is not to not to punish evildoers. And this is one of the one of my appreciation. One of the reasons I appreciate a lot of theonomic work is it says, look, the Bible lays out these very specific instances when the civil magistrate can get involved, um, and this isn't one of them. You know, the government can't preemptively say we're going to regulate the food supply. Now you can make the same arguments you make with the roadways, and that's why to me it it doesn't end. I mean, there is no overregulation. If the state can regulate, how do you define it? So how would you define overregulation if the state is allowed to go beyond what the Scripture says? And you can correct say that's not your position, but that's how I understand it. The state can go beyond Scripture and say, we're going to make a new law saying you're not allowed to sell milk unless you do this. So how how, how is that all not overregulation? Well, I, I, I'm actually in agreement with, with your um illustration but let me just let me just piggyback on it though in case i was wanting to push back for anything again my 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 standard is going to be the law of god the moral law of god and so uh if you can demonstrate for me that uh there is a high probability that someone you know growing their own eggs or selling you know milk from a neighbor is going to lead to some kind of disease or sickness then the sixth commandment would dictate that and that that's what I'm leaning on the sixth commandment here. Um, now, again, I'm not saying that that's this scenario. I'm just saying uh, you'd have to show me the problem that we have with our society is that it's assumed it's not proven that, you know, doing these things are is going to be dangerous. Um, so I, I think there's a, a matter of arbitrariness here that people who uh, follow rules and regulations uh, do so because they just assume it must be so. Um, you could think of the straw issue in California. They just people just assume plastic straws are going to, you know, kill the environment and, and get shoved up turtle noses. <laughs> right. um, and, and so, but if you could, you know, prove that it's going to be harmful and it's going to break the sixth commandment, yeah, I, I think that would that would be a good reason. But uh, I've never seen that case being made uh, and proven. Okay. So if, and I'm not saying there is, but if uh, if you could show me that, you know buying milk from your neighbor would lead to you know harmful results disastrous results then i could cite i could cite the sixth commandment as my my law uh my, my lawful obligation to regulate that i'm not saying that's happening i'm just saying that's how you could do it right. so my standard would still be the moral law of god okay well i think that's that's a great point of clarification and, and another thing where there might be disagreement here because what i'm hearing you say is the moral law of God is, you know, sixth commandment, you shall not murder. If there's something that potentially would lead to that, then the civil magistrate has the authority to come in and regulate it. You said, you know, if it has a high probability. And, and that's where I would push back and say, if I'm going to take all of Scripture, Scripture never presents the civil magistrate as doing something like that. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, you know, of course you have tyrants, but the, the, the law of God, as applied— it punishes people after they commit evil. It is, it is adjudicating justice between a man and his neighbor. So if someone's food does poison someone and kill them, then you have the adjudication. Then you have the civil magistrate come in and say, okay, there's a, there's a charge here. There's an injured party here. Now we have a trial. Now we have witnesses. And if you did indeed, through your negligence and recklessness, and this is where, again, we go to the example of you know, the goring ox. I mean, uh, and if, if you knew, um, and this is where you need magistrates with wisdom to adjudicate, but not to create new laws. 
But there you'd say, okay, you have injured this person with your products, and they are the ones uh, seeking redress of grievances. Now you have biblical justice. If you say, though, that contrary to that, I would say, if you say that the state, the civil government, the civil magistrate is authorized to punish people because there is a probability that someone will injure someone else, that to me is, is tyrannical, and it is, it is ripe for a complete abuse of power. And it's, it's kind of like the movie Minority Report, where it's like, well, we have strong probability to say, I don't know you're not promoting that movie, but we have strong probability to suggest that this person is going to do this. Now, that's not what you're saying. I understand that. But it's, there's a similarity there that, well, the sixth commandment is don't murder. Uh, and if we think that this could potentially lead to murder, we'll punish you. And I think that's one of the reasons that I'm pushing back. Another theonomist would push back and say, you know, for it seems like people would critique the theonomist and say, oh, you want this tyrannical government with enforce all these laws. And I'm sitting here saying, well, wait a minute. I, I think the other position opens the door for the government to punish anything they want. All they have to do is justify it by saying, well, this could potentially lead to harm. And I know, you, you know, people would say, well, yeah, they could be wrong. But I think that is a fundamental difference that biblical justice is adjudicated after the fact. Uh, it is not preemptive where you say, well, this could lead to harm, therefore we'll punish you. Um, because, well, go ahead. It's, it's, it's got to be more nuanced than that, though, because so, so we're, we're, we'll stay on the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is uh, do not murder. And the positive side of that is preserve life. There, there's a command implied there to preserve life. And if preserving life means that there's going to be certain regulations in which life will be preserved, then uh, so be it. Um, I, and so, go, go ahead. Well, I just don't know how you get to to the civil magistrate, because I, I, of course, agree that the law of God is all-encompassing for every single area of life. I mean, God God's law applies to our thought life. I mean, we are held accountable for the things we think, but that does not apply to the civil magistrate. We can't say, well, because, you know, the sixth commandment includes not to have hateful thoughts towards one another as we, you know, the Westminster larger catechism. I agree with that. That's an application of the sixth commandment. If I have hateful thoughts in my heart towards my brother, I violated the sixth commandment. It does not follow that the civil magistrate then can punish those hateful thoughts, assuming they could read my mind. And I mean, we do have thought crimes today. That's the insane thing. Um, the liberals are the ones pushing thought crimes. So just because preserving, seeking to preserve life is a correct application of the moral law of God to the individual or the family or the church, it does not mean that the civil magistrate then has authority to punish someone preemptively uh, and say, well, th this could lead to, this could lead to harm. Therefore, we're going to punish it. Uh, and I think, go ahead. I, I think you're missing a categorical component here. It's not that it's a preemptive. It's it's preemptive that we're going to make a law, and what is broken is that law that man has created. And I think right. what you're what you're not liking here is that it's creating a law of what we what might either be preemption or what, what might be for maintaining uh, order in society and efficiency uh, to do things decently and in order. And so your issue is that in order to preserve life, uh, the civil sphere is going to make a law to 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 ensure that it gets preserved and if it's if that's broken and, and again this is why if you could show me with a high probability that driving 90 miles an hour on the road leads to higher you know statistically leads to almost guaranteed recklessness um then yeah i i i think that that is abiding by the sixth commandment so if i could show you if I, so if i could show you that it would be more probable that if we got rid of the speed limit laws, but if you killed someone on the highway recklessly, you'd be executed. If I showed you that would lead to less highway fatalities, 
would you then be in favor of no speed limit laws, but execution for reckless death? Say it one more time. I'm sorry. It, it, so you had said if, you know, if you could be shown high prop with high probability that having these speed limits laws would preserve life. If I could show you with statistics, you know, those are the, I think the terms you mentioned, if I could show you with statistics and probability that if the only law we had as it relates to the highways and speed, for example, is that if you kill someone with your reckless driving, of course, you need a judge to judge that. I understand all that. That's biblical concepts. But if you kill someone with your reckless driving, you will be executed. So your life will be taken from you, whether you were, de whether you were driving under the influence or not. If it's your recklessness, you're going to be executed. Uh, if I if I could show you with probability and statistics that if we had if we just enforced that law, which is biblical law, we don't need to write a new one. If we enforced that law, and we got rid of all the speed limits, so there were no speed limits, but if you kill someone on the roadways, you will be executed. If you could be shown, you know, in this hypothetical, that enforcing that law would actually reduce highway fatalities more than the speed limit laws we have, would you then be in favor? of getting rid of speed limit laws and just enforcing the law of God, which says, if you kill someone through your recklessness, you'll be executed. I'm just thinking through scenarios of, 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 of situations. So, so you're saying, uh, so for one, yes, if, if, if uh, reckless driving leads to fatality, then, and if that were, if capital punishment were applied to that, yes, everyone would drive a lot more carefully, no, no doubt. So speed limits uh, w would not necessarily be a factor. Um, but I I'm just thinking of scenarios of of where it wasn't reckless driving, it was just a, a pure accident of, of happenstance right. and uh, a fatality occurs. Um, right. Well, there's biblical you know, categories for that. I mean, that, there's biblical I, categories. I understand that, but they're not always going to be uh, observed uh, or, or at least seen in a court of law. And so, well, I, 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 part of me wishes I didn't even bring up speed limits just because I, you, you've thought about this and I clearly have not. Um, but I, I mean, I, I could see where you're, where you're, where, where you have a point there, but I, I mean, you could say the same thing about theft. Uh, there's a reason why theft in certain countries is is uh, doesn't happen nearly as much because they'll cut off your hand. So anytime you you punish the wicked, and I think that's our biggest problem in America, that we have a civil magistrate who doesn't punish the evildoer when clearly evil and wickedness is being done. Yeah, we agree there absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I would just say with the with the theft, um, I, I I am limited by what God has prescribed, and of course we might disagree here. What God has prescribed. So for the thief. Uh, he should make restitution, not be put in a cage like an animal. I think the prison system is completely unbiblical. It's not just. And and there's so many layers of statism here that it is hard, and I recognize that, to step back and say, well, what if we actually did apply justice here? What if we did have a system where the government wasn't out there regulating preemptively and doing all these things, and we actually had uh, justice where if you wrong someone, if you harm someone, then justice was served. So I, you know, I think I know you weren't prepared with the speed limits. I think it's a great topic to bring up and uh, we, we can leave it at that for that. But that's kind of my point, I think. Uh, and you are right 100 percent that the issue is I, I am very uncomfortable with man-made law. Um, and that that is maybe a big fundamental thing here that I believe when when man goes to the legislative branch and says, well, we want you to make new laws for us, it inevitably terminates in some form of tyranny, because man is going to, uh, 
the people who create those laws are, are going to use it for their ends. And the beautiful thing about God's law is, yes, you could have a corrupt judge. You could have a corrupt judge. You know, you could have someone who, who there is clearly an accident, and the judge says, you know, well, I don't care, I'm executing you. Uh, you could have that, but it's such, there, there's much less tyranny that can happen when you limit the civil magistrate to their role of punishing evil, um, because the only, the only thing they can do then is defy the clearly revealed law of God. But when you allow them the wide breadth to, to preemptively punish and regulate, it always ends up punishing the righteous. And that's what we see in America. You know, I, I never know if when I walk out my door, if I'm obeying the laws of the state. I have no idea. I mean, I'm probably breaking a law right now. Um, well, and, and, I forget who it was, but someone said, you know, on average, people break seven laws a day. Right. Yeah. That's, I think that's maybe, maybe an understatement. And well, let me, let me back up though, because sure. you talk about how clear the law is. And again, when you say law, you're speaking of Moses's civil law, as well as the moral law. And then you mentioned prison systems being unjust, but why does the new Testament, which speaks of, uh, you know, p people going to prison, why does it never point out that that was uh, unlawful? It almost assumes that this is part of part of judicial uh, prudence, and so uh, I, I'm just wondering why you say it's so clear, and yet the New Testament seems like it, it's okay with prisons. Yeah, well, I don't know if I'd say the New Testament is okay with prisons. I think it's certainly descriptive of what was going on at the time. I think the argument I would make against prison systems is that nowhere in in the law word of God. So yes, I'm including the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, where God prescribes things, where he prescribes things, sometimes specifically to civil rulers, never does he say, you know, if so-and-so does this, put them in prison. Now, you might have a temporary time of holding, and that's how jails used to be in America. You would go there for a brief period until your trial. Uh, I'm sure you've seen those, especially in Virginia, these old towns, they have a small jail. You would go there potentially to be held briefly uh, in custody, you know, and then you'd have your trial. And so that's not even a foreign concept in American history, but nowhere in the Bible do you have God saying, if so-and-so breaks, you know, kills his neighbor or steals from his neighbor, put him in a cage for 10 years. Um, you only see that type of prison under pagan rulers or apostate, apostate kings. I mean, you think of Jeremiah, they didn't really even have like a prison system. They throw him in like a well, I think, and then he's in someone's house. Like, you don't have this system of prisons unless it's a pagan king who is, I would argue, operating outside God's God's law, or uh, an apostate king who has, you know, is punishing the righteous. And so that, that's again. Go but what I'm saying is that you, you you said that the law is clear on this, and I'm just saying it's it's not as clear as you make it out to be. Uh, never do you ever see anyone in Old Testament or New Testament being opposed to that form of punishment. Well, I, I, w I guess I wouldn't say necessarily that you need um, the negative argument against something. And this, this because then, again, that opens the door. If we have, if the government says, well, if we have a Christian arguing for some sort of political theory and they say, well, nowhere in the Bible does it say the government's not allowed to do this. I um, mean, that's kind of the whole argument with, with the founding of this nation. The anti-federalists were like, uh, you guys are going to do whatever you want um, and, unless we specifically tell you what you can't do. And then the, some of the people that were, well, I don't want to put a Bill of Rights in the Constitution, because if we put the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, now the government, and this is what happened, now the government is going to think they're only not allowed to do the things in the Bill of Rights, whereas it was supposed to be they're only allowed to do specifically what the Constitution 
quote unquote, you know, gives him authority for. And so I, I think it's the same thing. Like, just because the Bible doesn't say every single instance, well, the civil government's not allowed to do this. We take the scripture as a whole and say, here's what God has laid out uh, in scripture that the civil magistrate is authorized to do. And the forms of punishment we see authorized by God. And yeah, a lot of it's in the Old Testament. I mean, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm not saying you are either. But uh, there you have the case where the law is applied in the civil sphere more so than in the New Testament. It's, it's in the New Testament, you're dealing with uh, missionaries and apostles going out to all the nations. But my point is, and you're certainly, you know, obviously you can disagree with it, but my point is um, nowhere in those instances do you have this prison as a sentence. What you do have is either execution, restitution, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, physical punishment, but mainly restitution and execution. And there could be a few other things in there, but nowhere a, a prison sentence. And so that's where I'd argue. I mean, otherwise the state could come up with any manner of punishment and be like, you know, our punishment is, I know this is an absurd thing. We're going to, we're going to banish you to, to the moon uh, as your punishment. So again, I think the Bible lays down for us and it's a beautiful thing that, that the government can go this far and no further. And, and that's where I was hoping at least, and of course we're all growing in this together, that even though we might have some disagreements, especially as it relates to the first table, that we could come together and agree that the civil government should not be punishing the righteous. And my contention is when you give them the authority to regulate, the, the, the righteous are usually the ones that are punished because of our status system the people that rise to the top in a status system where you have man-made law and you have all this power and, and all this ability to influence things, the people that rise to the top are usually the wicked, and they're going to inevitably use man-made law to punish the righteous. So um, we, we are almost done here. I, I appreciate you, you, you being on here. I, I want to let you bring up anything you'd like to from the whole talk, any disagreements, any um, points you'd like to make to the listeners, uh, any challenges any encouragement to people on, um, on what's facing, you know, the church in the days ahead. Uh, and then we can just spend a few minutes here wrapping up. Motion detected at front door. Sorry. I That's okay. <laughs> um, uh, let's see here. I, you know, I, I I'm your guest, so I kind of want to leave it up to you. I, I don't know that I have, have much to say. Um, uh, maybe just to piggyback. Um, again, I, I, I would, I would emphasize, look how the new Testament deals quotes and applies the mosaic case law it's always applied to the church never to the civil sphere and so for me that's going to dictate my hermeneutic of how i treat uh the mosaic code and uh when, when you deal with israel being a theocratic nation where god's presence was manifest among them in the temple or the tabernacle then you do have exceptional cases and so when when you see uh how that gets used and applied to the church so uh, how, how the, the church regulates uh, getting the pastor double, double honor because, uh, and again, applying the case law, it's always applied to the church. So I, I would like to see that maybe discussed more because, um, you know, when you, when you say things are so simple, I hear that and I think that's simplistic. And so I, I would only want to push back in that when, when you say things are so simple, it, 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 th there's more of a hermeneutical nuance that you have to deal with that I don't think gets addressed, which might come back to full circle. We might not, you know, open up to Bonson and Rush Dooney right away because of that very thing. We might go to other sources and maybe we're not going to interact with others. And that's why we would say no one's been talking about this since 2020. 
Yeah, well, I think it's a fair point. I, I want to make sure that um, you're not hearing what I didn't say. And just for our listeners, um, I, I think my point is the law of God. Uh, and I think you would agree with me, the, the moral law of God, it, it, there's, a, there's a simple aspect to it. You know, the psalmist says, I shall walk at liberty for I keep your precepts. You know, I, I, can, I know that I know what I need to do to be righteous, you know, for in, in the public realm, in God's eyes. Like, I, I know that if I'm following God's, God's law, um, the moral law, right, I know that I'm not committing evil, right? And, and that's what I mean when I say it, it's, it's simple. God's law is simple. Now, of course, you know, uh, you know, Peter acknowledges, you know, there are things that are difficult to understand. I'm not saying we're not going to need to get into Scripture and study it, but my, my main point there was the law of God is simple. Uh, I in the sense that I can know what is righteous and what is not. Man's law is not. It is, you know, notoriously confusing, uh, voluminous, and you never know uh, when you're obeying it. Um, it since we got just a couple minutes left, um, you know, you mentioned that, you know, the New Testament um, and how the, the Mosaic law is applied. You're, obviously, we don't have enough time to get into all that. Um, I, I want to maybe ask you one final question about theft. Uh, you know, in, in but just to make a comment in Matthew 15, and maybe it's not fair to throw this on, you can briefly respond. You know, Jesus says, Jesus quotes the Mosaic case law about the child who curses his father and says that he should be executed. Um, Paul says, if I've done anything worthy of death, I don't object to it. Um, I, I'm, my thought there is Paul is not referring to, you know, some man-made law, but God's law. But Let's just take theft, and you can respond to any of that. I know I, I put a lot there, but theft, you know, for example, in the New Testament, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but work with his hands and, and give to those in need. That's a paraphrase. I'm just going from memory. But I, I guess one of the questions I think that a lot of people would have is, okay, well, yes, that is, you know, applying um, the law against theft. It's not a direct quote of a case law, but how do we deal with theft today? And, and, and do we not go to all of the word of God and say, how did God lay out dealing with theft? And I would, I would say that we should require th thieves to make restitution. And do I make that case solely from the New Testament? Probably not. But uh, I guess I want to leave it there with a final question for you related to theft. And maybe it'll help our listeners understand how you would come to make an application here um, in the civil sphere. Is, 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 is it fine to put someone in jail for theft? Um, you know, lock them up? Go ahead. So this is where general equity comes in. I hear general equity and I hear it historically meaning that we take the moral law and we draw out inferences from that. A lot of times people talk, call themselves a general equity theonomist. They say we take the Mosaic Code and draw principles from that. And that's not what general equity means. So I, I'm, I, I am in agreement that the proper way to deal with theft is restitution. Um, <clears throat> if restitution is even possible. Sometimes it's not even possible, and so punishment has to follow in order that uh, uh, a repeated you know, thief might be uh, prevented from doing that. Um, but what, what, what leads me to that conclusion is how, how was the Eighth Commandment applied in the Old Testament? How do we see the Eighth Commandment applied in the New Testament? And that's what's going to drive it. It's not going to be um, how was Moses' case law for Israel going to going going to be used? That's one way it could be applied, but it doesn't have to be. And I think even theonomists would say that, uh, for example, punishments though those are potential. You know, the the most extreme form of punishment possible, but it doesn't mean you have to go with you know death for certain of these crimes. 
And, and likewise, we, we could say the same thing. The New Testament uses the, the Eighth Commandment and talks about how it should be dealt with. So again, what's driving this for me is going to be the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. And, and I, I'm in full agreement with you that uh, if, if the government would um, crack down on what is absolutely demonstrated by Scripture as wicked, there would be a lot less problems and we would have a, a lot less regulate, regulatory needs. Uh, and again, we might disagree on the word needs. But anyways, there would be no need for regulations, period, because I, I'm full in agreement with you. Um, so uh, let the moral law of God dictate what is right and wrong. And from there, um, you know, use that as the basis of how do we understand the Old Testament Mosaic Code? How do we understand that being used in the New Testament, in the church, in the civil sphere, and so forth? And you mentioned Paul saying, if I've done anything requiring, you know, the death penalty, so be it. And he's saying, in other words, if I've done anything according to God's moral law that would dictate a death penalty, I'll take that. But if not, I'm going to object. Uh, Paul certainly objected when he was mistreated, and rightfully so. So I think there's a lot of there is a lot of overlap here, but how you uh, w would understand to get to that principle is going to differ than how I would get to that principle. Uh, I'm going to lean on the moral law, whereas in, in theonomy, it's it's not going to make the the distinction between moral law and case law so much. And so it, it comes down to how we understand general equity, uh, as our confessions put it. Yeah, I think that's helpful for our listeners. Um, I appreciate that. Um, I think maybe, my, I think my hope is maybe there's more common ground than we think, because when you say we're going to look to the Old Testament, we're going to see how the Eighth Commandment was applied. Um, th that's what I'm arguing for. Uh, and where do we see it applied? Yes, it's in these case laws, um, but... It, how do we how do we apply it today? What, what wisdom do we have from God's Word? So... I appreciate that, and I also think you're right on the fact of, you know, we might nuance it differently, but you have a need for a nanny state because people aren't regulating themselves, and it's much, it's, it's, it flows much more easily for people who have given over to the state, you know, the education of their children, the protection of themselves. I mean, we would agree on some of that at least, that we should, you know, protect ourselves and our families. Once you give all that over to the state, it, it becomes very hard to pull back any of this, so... You and I certainly and, agree. And I'll yeah. give you one more. I'll admit one more thing. Uh, I have been so influenced. We have all been influenced by uh, anti-supernaturalism. We're, we live in a very materialistic culture. And I don't mean materialism, but just only what is here now in the material world. So much so that even, even Christians, and I, I find myself guilty of this, we think that we have to maintain safety in the physical world because... We don't say this, but we had, we're thinking it. This is all there is, and there's not. And so, um, if if Christians would would start being more supernaturally minded, that there is more to come after death, and God's judgment will be fulfilled. However, if it doesn't get fulfilled here, it will get fulfilled in the future. Yes, we would be a lot less prone to regulation. And more prone to just punishing wickedness and praising the good. So I think we can find common ground there that a lot of the problems with Christianity, and I, I fought, fault myself, I've been swimming in those waters for so long, sometimes I, I don't even realize it, and, and, and I've got to double check myself. So I think that's a driving feature here as well. We're so wanting to regulate safety because we're so afraid of, of death, not realizing that for the Christian, uh, to die is gain. And, and so, we, we, it, you know, that's a component here. I think you and I would find agreement there as well.
Yeah, that's very well said. That's a great place to end. Uh, very well put. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on here. I'll give you a moment to share where people can find out more information about you. But I appreciate you coming on. I think this is great. Love to have you on again. These sort of interactions where, you know, especially since we're coming from the same foundational point that Christ is Lord, He is King, um, and He defines what is righteous. And, and let's wrestle through these things. I think you and I would both agree that there are potentially troubling days ahead for the church, both in America and across the globe. And the more we can sharpen one another, there's many things I need I need to learn and, and all of us. So I, I hope that at least post-2020, we can, we can wrestle through these things more and be fair to one another and, uh, and challenge one another. And that's part of it. Iron sharpens iron. So thank you so much, uh, Timothy, for coming on the show today. Where can people go to find out about you and your book? And where's the best place to find that information? Uh, uh, Founders Press. Uh, so I think it's press.founders.org is where you can pre-order it. It might be on Amazon too. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm, I try not to be uh, self-promoting, so I have no it, idea it where you can Amazon. find me. It is on Amazon. I'm on Amazon right here. So if you put in Timothy Decker, a revolutionary reading of Romans 13, a pre-order price is only $9.99. So, and it says 342 pages here. So I have price. no idea. That might change down the road. I'm not sure. Yeah. That might be a paperback version. I have no idea. I don't, I don't do any of that. I just uh, I, I wrote it because there's a big gap. Uh, in in the in the in our in our sphere, maybe not in your sphere, but in our sphere, there's a major gap of political theology and understanding of Romans 13. So, uh, if it can benefit the church, to God be praised. That's right. Well, thank you again for coming on. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. It's sometimes hard to get people on, uh, you know, if they know they're going to have some different views. But I commend you for that. Um, that's what the church needs. So, thank you again uh, for more information about Timothy Decker. Just, I mean, Google his name, look up Founders Press. Uh, find his book, A Revolutionary Reading of Romans 13 on Amazon. And uh, I encourage you to read that. I will be getting a copy. I'm going to wait for that forward from Dusty Devers and uh, look forward to reading that. So for more information about the Lancaster Patriot, go to thelancasterpatriot.com. Until next time, remember that Christ, not man, is king. So long. <laughs>